we've been continuing this study in Ezra, and um, you know, I hope that you're getting kind of this, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to say, children, you may now go to kids' worship and as they are going. I hope one of the things that you're getting, this message that you're, that, that you're seeing is how important it is that we be faithful. You know, some people say we should have faith. Yes, we should have faith. We should, you know, hold on to the faith we have. And when they talk about that, they talk about, you know, what we believe. And that's true. But this is more than that. This is not just holding on to what you believe. This is living in a faithful, faithful way in every situation. In every situation. And what we've seen here is we've seen like the exiles, they've, they've returned. They reestablished this uh, worship, the sacrificial system. They lay the foundation for the temple and then they face opposition. Then after about 18 years, the temple is started again and they finally finish the temple. And following that, you know, there's a, there's a gap. There's this time where, where they're given to live faithfully in this land. And what was that land like? You know, they, they had some leaders that God had given them and then there had been some other leaders that had come along but Jerusalem still doesn't have a wall. It doesn't have walls. The, there's no like sense of like stability there, but they are living and they're there with, with the people. And so about 50 years later, as we started last week, we see the, the, the giving of these, this, this leader slash teacher. His name is Ezra. And we, we see that that, that, was the, that was the next step. The next step was to, to have these leaders, student, you know, who's a student and a teacher, and, and have them be able to hold the people together. And we, we read this Bible verse last week. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You know, there's, there's some people who say like, well, you know, um, you know, I don't really need to get involved in a local church because, you know, I listen to, um, you know, pastors on TV or on the radio and, and you know, and I you know, read books and things like that. But understand the important thing here that's taking place. It's talking about Ezra, who didn't just know God's word and didn't just teach it, but he lived it. He lived God's word. And how would we know Ezra lived God's word if all we did was see him on TV or read about him in a book? You know, we just had our marriage conference yesterday, and, you know, we had... Um, um, Sam and Jamie Kapu, who are kind of local people, they, they were here and they were the, the main speakers. Other times we brought in people from the mainland and, and you know, well-known speakers and they've written books and all of that. And, you know, the, the teaching is all good, but what would be more powerful is if we saw their marriages. And just about anybody can talk a good marriage, but can we live one? Can we, you know, show people in the day-to-day of how we're living life what, you know, how we actually live and relate to one another? Sam and Jamie were very open about just talking about a lot of the things they've gone through and what they're still going through even today. But a lot of times we become, we fall in love with these, these preachers and teachers and, you know, scholars and writers because what they write is, is awesome and it's powerful. But we're not there living life with them. And yeah, I'm going to tell you, if you had no choice except to interact that way, then fine. 
we need to be in a community where our, our teachers and our leaders are living in that community with us. And I was reminded this week, this very sad reminder, that one of the most well-known speakers in Christian circles for probably the past maybe 20 to 30 years, you know, he died recently, and um, you know, even prior to his death, there had been reports about you know, problems of infidelity that he had. It's a shame. This guy was such an influential, such a powerful figure, written so many books. What he wrote, still true. But it wasn't like Ezra, because I didn't know his life. I never lived life with him. And as the church, that's what's really important that we do, that we live life together. In fact, to some level, we should all strive to be like Ezra. We should all strive to be people who, who study God's Word, live God's Word, and teach it. Now, make no mistake, we're not all Ezra's. Some people are going to be very gifted the way Ezra was gifted, and others, maybe not. But we can all be people who want to study God's Word and to live God's Word. That we, we, we can do. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're, we're called. We're called to be a nation of priests. We're not called to be a nation of just people that just hang out and just wait to be told what to do. We're a royal priesthood. And that's not just a title that's given to us. It's not like, you know, um, sometimes people, you know, earn honorary doctorates, right? Just a something given to them because of maybe what they had done for the school or whatever. It's not an honorary thing to say you're a royal priesthood. It's saying who you are. It's just who you are. And you go, well, that's not me. I don't know what to tell you then, <laughs> because as believers in Christ, we're called to be part of this royal priesthood these people who've come together as one body in Christ, who, who are disciples, who study, who want to know, who encourage one another, live out their faith together. And so we, we see this. This is where, where we are at this point. And we know that this, this, is, this can be difficult. It was difficult for them. It's difficult for us. And I think sometimes we get confused. We get a little confused in the, in, in when we talk about things like this. Because if someone says, um, we should all be like Ezra, then everybody assumes, hey, then I guess we're all equal. One thing I've learned is that if I lived this life that I have, if I lived it a million times, okay, just was able to live this life a million times, and each time make different decisions and have different results. There are some things that would never be true. As a matter of fact, I could raise it from a million to a billion times. I could live my life a billion times, and I will never in any of those lives be a professional basketball player who makes it to the Hall of Fame because, you know, I was... 7-2. It does, it, there's, I, I could try. You might think like, oh, you know, you're selling yourself short. N no pun intended. You, 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 could, you could be thinking that, but there are things that, that are true. Like you can do, you could a million times, unless I was a different person, but if it's just me, 057 me, you know, no. If it's the same world, 
a million times, it's never going to be. I was, I was watching, you know, I told you guys about a show I've been watching called Food That Built America, and they were, they were talking about how some of these really successful business people, then the phrase they use is, is that they, can, they could see around corners. And what does that mean? It means that, it means that, that, that they, they could see what, what was coming and you know, start their business or adjust their business to meet what was coming. Some of them, it was just luck. You know, some of them, they, they, they became successful because they were lucky and they worked hard. But others, it's because they had that special ability to, to see around corners. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because I, one of the problems I think we have in our world and in our church is that we often confuse the idea of the equality of person with equality of ability. Make no mistake, the Bible says that, that we are equal before God. But the Bible never says that we all have equal ability. And people confuse those, two, those things sometimes. And we say stuff like that in our world. You may have said it yourself. I'm not sure I ever said this to my kids or anybody I gave advice to, but maybe you've heard it. You can be whatever you want to be. It's a lie. I'm sorry. I know it sounds better to say that, but it's not true. You can't be whatever you want to be. There's limits to all of our abilities. It doesn't mean, by the way, that you or any of us are maxing out your abilities. When I used to, uh, you know, when I used to, um, you know, do the weight room at a school that I worked at, I would have students come in that wanted to work out, usually guys, and they'd be like, oh, you know, should I take these supplements? And I would tell them, those supplements are for people who are maxing out their effort and their diet, and they're like at 99% of what they can achieve, and they just need that to get them over that 1%. And sometimes if I was nice, I would say, do you think you're that person? If you are thinking the supplements are going to make up for the 10 cheeseburgers you ate today, or the fact that you only work out once every other week, it's not going to make up for it. The supplements aren't going to grow muscles on a lazy body. But that's how we sometimes, you know, we sometimes think. It's like, oh, we can, we can all do this. But we shouldn't confuse these things. There are limits to our abilities. And again, this goes against, you know, you know, follow your heart, follow your dreams. They'll take you anywhere. But most of us aren't necessarily maximizing our abilities anyways, so there's still a lot of room for growth. So don't use that as an excuse to say, this is me, this is all I am. No, all of us can, can be more. But I want you to keep that in mind as we kind of move forward here because we, we talked last week about the importance of, of teachers. And this week we're going to talk about the importance of leaders. And there's a lot of times the, the problems that come about with this confusion between equality of person and equality of ability is that there's this view that anybody can be a leader. And it's not true. The Bible makes that clear to us. Remember, we, last week we read Ephesians 4. And Ephesians 4 you know, said that there were, certain, there were certain people that were gifted to be leaders. And that immediately, like, bugs us. Because it, it makes it seem like I'm saying, like, there are some people who are better than other people, and it's not true. 
Remember, this equality of person is there in Scripture. If God has equipped us to be leaders, it's not because we're special. It's because God has chosen to to use us and gift us to be the leaders. But in the same way, every other role is God's gift to us. Remember when Paul was writing about the body? And he said, he talks about the body of Christ, and he's writing about how we can't all be eyes, can't all be the same parts. But then he also said, some of the parts of the body that are unseemly, that we don't, you know, we don't think highly about, that they're honored. We, we bring to the church the same idea that we have in the world, that somehow leaders are better. They're better human beings. And it's just not true. But leaders are different. People are different. And so when we see Ezra coming, you're going, God, 50 years passed. 50 years, and finally you send them a leader? He didn't just send them a leader. He sent them Ezra. He didn't have 20 other Ezras to just keep sending over there. He sent them Ezra. And so Ezra goes, and he goes there, and he's got this really important job because he's going to help the people transition. They're going to transition from just being a group of people to being a nation again. And not just any nation, but a nation that's founded on the Word of God. So he's got this really tough job. And he's specially equipped for it. You know, we, we read, and um, when we go back into the Old Testament a little bit farther back, we go into 1 Samuel, and we read about how there's, there's this, this push to have a king by the Israelites, and they want to have a king on their own terms for their own reasons. And the Bible has told us that God eventually wants Israel to have a king, but they want to have a king so they can be like everybody else. And so, for whatever reason, God gives in and says, you want a king? Here's a king. And they get King Saul. King Saul wasn't anything like Ezra. And that's kind of that thing that sometimes we want to force the issue. We want to, to like try to like just say we can just put anybody into any job and, and they can do the job. Well, maybe that's true for some jobs, but in this situation, Ezra. Ezra, uniquely gifted, uniquely prepared to do this. And at the end of the previous chapter, it says this, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, remember, the king is writing to Ezra. He says, Appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond their river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Immediately following that, so he's saying, you need to have leaders, and, and you need to have these leaders who know uh, the law, and, you need, and, and the people need to know the law. But immediately following that, we get this list for about 14 verses. It's this list of, of the leaders, their actual names and the genealogies. And it's important because, because what this is saying is that, is that Ezra is not just starting all over. Make no you know, make no mistake, what 
what Judah is going to be following Ezra is going to be very different from what Judah was before the exile. It's going to be very different. Make no mistake. But there's still this importance of connecting. And why do they need to connect? They need to connect because this isn't a clean break. This is a continuation of this covenant, this covenant between the Israelites and between God that had been established centuries before. This isn't a new covenant. It's a continuation of the first covenant. And so it's important that they, they, they keep this connection. Plus, they're going to go back to this land, and, and these, these people are, this is their land. They're tracing the families because the land ownership went through the families. So we have these genealogies, and then following the genealogies, we have the text here in Ezra 8 says this, verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for leading, uh, I skipped some verses ahead, I think here, for, uh, for men, leading men and men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place, Casiphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place, Casiphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18, and also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. They were all mentioned by name. So he gathers these, these leaders and he realizes there's no, there's no Levi's there. Why is that important? Well, the priests, they came from the tribe of Levi. And so he's going to, to send for them. And then he, he, they find them, and they find them at this place, and the whole reason it says the place Casiphia, place meant in the Old Testament, usually when it's designated like that, meant that there was something sacred there. There was either a, um, a, a sanctuary or uh, what maybe eventually become a synagogue. And that's, of course, where you would find these priests. And you can think about this, like, why did he think this was so important? Why did Ezra think this was so important? And he thought it was so important because as the leader, he didn't want to cut corners. He didn't want to compromise, even when it might have made sense to compromise. He wanted the leaders that he was going to appoint to meet the qualifications of God's word. He wanted the leaders to meet the qualifications of God's word. It wasn't just, oh, no Levi's. Well, you know, we can just train up some other people. We can just get some other people to do this. You know, it, it, it would have made maybe more sense. It's been a long time. You know, it's been you know, 100 30 years since they were back in Jerusalem. Plus, none of these people had ever been to Jerusalem. Remember, 130 years later, these are grandchildren of exiles. But what's interesting is that they had maintained all of these lineages. They had maintained all of these offices, even though they didn't have a temple. Even though they couldn't, they couldn't do what they had done in Jerusalem, they still were maintaining this. 
And for Ezra, it's so important, so important that they do everything according to God's law. Well, he then says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the man enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And what do we find here? Well, two things. We find, first of all, this, that this Ezra is the leader. He's going to lead with humility, and he's going to lead with faith. He calls this fast. And the fast, again, is that they humble themselves before God. That they say, like, they understand that what they're about to do is, is not of themselves. They're about to cross this area that, where they, they have no protection, and they can be attacked at any time. We, during, on Wednesday night, we talked about this. You know, by today's wages, they are carrying billions of dollars. They have so much wealth. They are such easy prey. And they're crossing this, you know, the, the, not really a desert, but they're crossing this wilderness area. And so they're not just doing like we do, like, you know, we get on a plane, pray for safe travels on the plane. No. They're going through enemy space. It's uncertain. And it's not like they're keeping it a secret. People know. And so they, they come before God and they say, what we're going to do, it's not going to be about us. We're going to humble ourselves before God. And then you see this, this faith, right? I mean, um, it seems like Ezra is kind of at first admitting like, oh, uh, maybe I regret what I told the king. Maybe I was a little too bold in what I said our God would do. You know, I mean, I just said, you know, the hand of our God is good, on, um, is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. I, you know, I was so confident in God. And I don't really think Ezra is second-guessing himself. But I think he's thinking what really makes sense is have the king send some soldiers along with us. That makes sense. In fact, Nehemiah is going to do exactly that. It's not here about what makes sense. Instead, it's about demonstrating this faithfulness in God. Ezra said it, and then he didn't, at first he's like, oh, I said it, but he didn't unsay it. And he didn't unsay it because he really believed it. And he believed it so much that he was going to take this group of about 5,000 people through this dangerous area with all of this treasure. And he was going to expect God to protect him. His faith. Yeah, he probably could have, you know, gone back and said, hey, king, this is what I really meant. But I think Ezra would have known that would have been a lie. I think when Ezra said this to the king, he really believed it. 
And because he really believed it, it wasn't a, I made a mistake. Um, God's going to protect us, but he's going to protect us with your swords and your spears. That's what I really meant to say. He doesn't, he doesn't walk it back because he really believes it. And notice, we think faith is sometimes blind, and we think faith is some kind of, it's almost like brave to the point of stupid. But, you know, I got to think, Ezra knows he's about to do a really dangerous thing. He trusts God, but he knows he's about to do a really dangerous thing. And he not only knows it's their safety and everything else going across, he knows that the foundation of this new nation and the foundation of his leadership is going to be based on people believing that he knows what God is saying and that he is faithful to do it. It's a big deal. So we have both this humility, this trust in God, and this faith. I'm always reminded when we think about leaders who are humble, you know, I'm reminded, of course, of Jesus. And, and we read in John 13, verses 3 through 5, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Stop here for a second. Back up. Yeah, stay there. We skip this part. We just go right to the washing of the feet part. Don't skip that part. That part's there for a reason. Think about it. Jesus knows all things had been given to him by the Father. He knows that he had come from the Father. He's going back to the Father. He has this, this, this growing awareness of who he is as the Son of God. He knows that. And then he washes feet. What do we do when we realize how special we are? Party, you know, celebrate, little pat on the back, make sure someone else knows. No. With all of this knowledge in his head, He's washing people's feet. Don't miss that part of the picture. It's one of the reasons. There are several reasons, but it's one of the reasons I'll never wash your feet on stage here. Um, because first of all, I can't make that picture. I can't possibly be as great as Jesus is and then wash feet. That picture is just, it's just lost. Only Jesus can, can do that. There's other reasons, like I don't want to touch your feet and stuff like that. But, but the main reason is I can't, that, I'm, I'm not going to give you that picture. I can give you the picture of humility but I can't give you the picture of humility that comes from the divine Son of God. Can't do it. And it says, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Humility. Humility, which should be the mark of, of every Christian, but especially those who would be leaders. But again, some people mistake humility for weakness. They, they mistake humility for, for like a leader who doesn't really, you know, lead, basically. Well, Paul writes in 1 Timothy to Timothy, who's a young man, in leading a church of people who are older than him. He says, 
command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He's not saying, oh, servant leader, you just, you know, just hang back, you know, no. Command, teach, let no one despise. But as you're doing that, you are setting an example. You're setting the example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Everything Paul says to Timothy, it's all stuff that we can do and that we should do. But if you're going to be a leader, then it is something that you must do. We see later on that Paul writes that that Timothy needs to encourage. He needs to encourage. And, and it's interesting how he says this in chapter 5. He says, encourage older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. There's a spirit to what you do, to how you lead. But make no mistake, you must lead. Back in Ezra, verse 24, Ezra writes, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. They're like, why, you know, why did we include this part. In fact, this, there's much more to this part. I'm just pulled out an excerpt from it. Why did, was this part included? Why did Ezra do this, and why did he feel the reason to note it down? And I think it has to do with this idea of trust. Why should the people trust Ezra? Well, they trust Ezra because he's accountable. And what's interesting is it's not that he's so much accountable to them. It's that he's accountable to God. See, this is why that whole idea of the TV preacher and the radio preacher and all that, they can give us good lessons. But do you know if they're being accountable to God? Do you see how they're living their lives, how they run their ministries. Some of them are going to be doing an incredible, awesome job. But do you know? There's this trust. And see, the, again, the trust is not that they are accountable, that the leaders are accountable to, to me or to, accountable to us. No, they're accountable to God. I would, I would be very, I'd be very worried if my pastor or my leaders felt the need to be accountable to me, especially if they wanted to be accountable to me and not accountable to God. If they had to make this choice, I want them to be accountable to God, even if it goes against what I think. You see Ezra, he's taking this time. He wants to do things by God's, by God's law, God's word, but he's also showing that I am doing exactly what I was told to do. I am fulfilling this role that God has given me. 
You know, and I want to, you know, kind of revisit a couple of scriptures we looked at last week. Because I think we, we get confused sometimes. You know, if, a, if our leaders in our churches are being accountable to God rather than accountable to us, what are they doing? Well, in Ephesians 4, we talked about this. They're equipping the saints. If I'm going to do the task that I find in Scripture that's been given to me and any of the rest of you who are here that are, in, that are, that are leaders, our job is not to do everything. Our job is to equip the saints. Equip the saints. Because if it's just me doing it, or if it's just a handful of leaders doing things, then the health of the church is totally dependent upon those leaders. If something happens to us, what happens to the church? But if leaders are equipping the saints, if they're investing in the saints and the saints are doing the work, if the leader is not there, oh, there's going to be an effect, but it's not going to fall apart. I'm the kind of person that the kind of leader that I would be I would be sad and I would feel like I failed if for whatever reason I left the church and I wasn't here and the church fell apart I wouldn't think of that as like oh that just shows how great and awesome I was that it all fell apart no I would think I failed because it wasn't about building a church around me and about my personality and my leadership skills. It's about creating a healthy community that can survive regardless of who's, who's here and who's in charge. It's equipping of the saints. Again, what Paul told Peter was to teach Teach those who will be faithful to teach others. That's how you pass down generation to generation. As we saw with what Ezra did, he identified the leaders, and then the leaders who needed it, he equipped the leaders. This idea of being a, a servant leader it, it's not easy. Most people can't pull it off because it requires this, this heart of a servant, and yet you're still the leader. Jesus wrote, writes, you know, says this in John 15. He says, You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. There are some people that read that, and as soon as they read the word friends, they just lose their brains. Oh, Jesus wants to be my buddy. He's my friend. Awesome. Yes, Jesus is your friend. But notice, he's still Lord. He says, I call you friends, not because, hey, you know, we're all pals, but I call you friends because if I was just your master, I would just tell you what to do and not explain it to you. I'm your friend. I'm still going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to explain it to you. That's the difference. 
Jesus doesn't stop being Lord. There's some people that actually interpret this verse as saying Jesus is giving up his lordship and exchanging it for friendship. And all he really wants to be is your friend. He wants to be your buddy. No, it's not what it says. Lordship doesn't go away. Friendship doesn't replace lordship. It comes alongside it. And it's really hard. It's really hard to do. I remember my first teaching job. I was probably young, uh, too young, and not properly equipped. But I had, to me, like working with high school students had always been ministry and not teaching. And I remember how I had to learn to kind of walk that line when I became a teacher. Because when you become a teacher, there's a certain professional aspect to what you do. In fact, some people would, even at a Christian school, would look kind of critically at you if you acted more like a minister than a teacher. And you might think like, you know, that's weird at a Christian school, but it's true. Because, you know, you're, as a teacher, you're supposed to keep your professional distance. How do you keep professional distance if you're a minister? Well, back then I just knew how, how difficult it was. How difficult it was to let the students know that I cared about them as people, but at the same time I was their teacher. And as much as I cared about them and I would, you know, listen to their struggles and be there for their victories and all of this other things, if they failed my class, they failed my class. Because I was a teacher. And it wasn't easy all the time, and not every, everyone understood it. But I think even at a larger scale, this idea of being a servant leader it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to pull off. And yet we're called to do it. And they're so important. These leaders were so important. Ezra and the leadership he sets up is so important because the people left on their own are not going to be able to stay faithful in every situation. And they needed this, this leadership to help them to do that. Again, what's coming next week, what's coming next week, it's, it's not pretty. What's coming next week is the thing that in churches today we still try to avoid. And they're going to have to confront head-on the sin that has pretty much overtaken the, the community of faith there. It's not easy to do. And they're going to need leadership that's focused and faithful to God's word to guide them through that. Some things to think about. If I were to ask you, like, and what is God doing here? We know he asks us to be faithful, but what is he doing here? What is he building here? What does he want Wailai Baptist Church to be? You know, I'll say the thing that a lot of times people don't want to hear, but you know what? I don't know. I don't know exactly. Here's what I do know. Is that God has been bringing together people people from different backgrounds, various gifts, helping them to grow in their faith. And what we become will be something that God weaves together. Whenever I would take groups to Haiti, the early meetings before the trip, you know, leading up to it, usually a few months out, I would, I would sit down, and most of these were students, and I would tell them, I said, I would say, what can you do? 
What can you do? I don't care what it is, tell me what you can do. I'd have them write it down. Because I said, when we go to Haiti, I don't want to say, this is what we're going to do. I said, I want the trip to be who we are. So when we, when we go, we are bringing whatever gifts and abilities and talents we have, and we're going to let God use them. And every year, the trip was different. One year, we had a rancher go. He's, he owned a bunch of um, agricultural land, ranch land in Texas. He went, and he, he met with a school that had a garden, and he tested the soil and did all kinds of things to help them. Some other guy, he was probably the Haitian's favorite guy. He just knew how to fix everything. So he showed up there, and he, he was so sad because he wanted to go out on the, you know, the, we'd go to schools and do sports camps, evangelism, and he'd want to go, but every day they would be like, oh, can you fix this? Can you fix that? You know, they had a sewing school, and they only had about three sewing machines that worked. Well, there were about seven or eight sitting on the side. He put them all, got them all together, and got another three or four to work. You know, they had like all these generators. That's how they get electricity was through generators. Had them all stacked up and like, oh, how come you have all these generators? Oh, they don't work. He went, you know, did a tune-up on them, fixed them. Now they had like four generators. We had people that, you know, Cheryl would go and she would do, do worship seminars and conferences. We had, we had people who just knew how to make, you know, jewelry out of like copper and they showed them how to make jewelry. At a medical clinic, just about anything. And I think that's, that's why God brings us together. He brings us together because we are unique. We have different gifts. We have different abilities. What is God going to do? Some of you you know, I, I, I know there's like, there's in the last couple years, there's been several of you who have background in things like counseling. Well, why, why don't we do something here with counseling? Some of you have a lot of experience working with, with you know, impoverished families. Why not that? I don't know what, what your, what your skill set is. I don't know what, what you can bring. I just know if we think about what God's building here, he's not just going to magically make things appear. And he doesn't want us necessarily to fit into some mold. He wants to use who we are and weave it together in a beautiful way. It comes from us being faithful faithful to his word, to study it, to live it, and to teach it.